Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. You're with Sophie Guy, and today I'm talking with Sarah McLean about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD as it commonly gets referred to. Sarah is a registered psychologist and adjunct fellow at the University of South Australia. Sarah's work involves identifying the practice implications of emerging research in the overlapping areas of clinical child psychology, neuropsychology, and child protection. Her research translation activities focus on supporting children in the out-of-home care system, where she has been influential in highlighting the role and impact of developmental differences and FASD in this population of children. Sarah works as a consultant and is currently part of the content development team for Emerging Minds National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health. In today's episode, we discuss the challenges of diagnosing FASD, as well as the benefits that early diagnosis brings in terms of appropriate supports for the child and caregivers. Thank you very much, Sarah, for joining me today to have a conversation about your work and experience working with children and families who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You're very welcome. I'd just like to hear, first of all, a little bit about your background and how you came to work in this area. Um, Well, my background is in child and adolescent mental health uh, originally, so I was a psychologist and working on some uh, specialised units that were supporting children with serious and significant mental health issues. And so I became um, very interested in why for some of those children, their evidence-based approaches weren't really effective. Um, And so I began a journey of sort of uncovering and unpacking what happens in the space of early adversity for children and how that might affect their brain development and how that might affect what kind of therapies and supports we offer them. And as part of that journey in in discovering what kind of might work for children in um, out-of-home care or who've experienced early adversity, I was fortunate enough to, to meet with Sue Myers, who was a foster carer, who introduced me to the area of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I became fascinated with why this was um, such a poorly understood at the time area of research or um, area of um, children's needs that was very poorly supported. Um, And so I became interested in learning more about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and what that actually means for how we support children. Then, yeah, perhaps you could tell me a bit about what is, how do we understand fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, FASD as it often gets called. Could you talk a bit about what it is? Okay, so um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is really an umbrella term um, that's used to describe a whole range of developmental issues that come out of alcohol exposure in in the womb. So it's a non-diagnostic term, much like um, autism spectrum disorder, that the spectrum is is really captures the fact that it's a whole range of diverse difficulties that children can experience. And historically, it's been known by different names. So the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder really captures the fact that it's there are a range of disorders, there are a range of difficulties that young people can have and they fall under the spectrum of difficulties that happen when uh, a child, that can happen when a child's exposed to alcohol in utero. Mm -hmm. And how prevalent is it? So um, we really are beginning to understand that it's a lot more prevalent than we have thought previously. So originally we thought it was a very, very um, uncommon experience. Mm -hmm. Um, We thought that um, a little bit of alcohol exposure during um, pregnancy was okay, and that really maybe about one in a thousand children would 
experienced difficulties as a result of that. Uh, we now understand through large scale meta-analytic studies um, and prevalence studies that have been conducted um, in Western countries that the prevalence is, falls, is likely to fall somewhere between two and 5%. So it's a lot more common than we have thought previously. Mm. And it's even more common, it seems, in certain populations of children who might be at heightened risk. So when we look at children who are placed in out-of-home care, foster care or residential care, we're looking uh, at conservatively an estimate of around uh, 16, 17% of those children, we believe, um, fall on the spectrum of, um, of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and in youth justice populations, we believe something around 20 to 30% of those young people um, meet the criteria for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So we're beginning to understand that it's really a lot more common than we've previously thought. Okay, and is that because it's um, being better recognised? Or yeah, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. I think there's been some really good research done that has heightened um, our awareness around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And we know now a lot more about drinking patterns. Um, so uh, we know a lot more about uh, the, the fact that women, you know, 50% of pregnancies, a woman may be drinking or may, it may be unplanned. So because of the quality of the research that's coming out, we better understand the difference, um, the different patterns of presentation of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So for example, when I studied, um, when I went through my training, I was taught that a child who's been experience brain damage because of alcohol exposure will have characteristic facial features. So they'll have shortened eyes, they'll have thin lips and they'll have a flattened um, philtrum here. So that little groove between the nose and the mouth is flattened out. So there are characteristic features of a child who's been exposed to alcohol and had brain damage as a result. So that's what we were taught going through. So there's been classically this association between facial features and brain damage. So we thought that if a child doesn't have those facial features, they probably weren't affected by alcohol exposure. And now because of the quality of the research that's coming out, we understand a lot more that children can have significant cognitive issues um, and learning issues and attention issues, even without those facial characteristics. So we're really okay. uncoupling brain damage from those facial characteristics. So previously, you know, a very small proportion of children would have those facial characteristics and it really depends on the timing of alcohol exposure. Is is the child exposed to alcohol when those facial features are developing? Right. So it's more about timing, not so much dose response of how much yeah. alcohol is That's right, yeah. So we're we're beginning to unpack that a little bit more. Right. And we understand that a child can look completely the same as any other child and yet still have significant cognitive issues. And in some ways that's really more troubling for a child because it's really an invisible disability in that case. Mm -hmm. So ch the child looks like anybody else. And so it can be very frustrating for parents around, why can't this child behave or why doesn't this child learn or what's wrong with their memory? Mm. So we're beginning to really understand um, a lot more about the, the the diverse ways in which fetal alcohol spectrum disorder can present. Okay, yeah, I had a question and it may be a little bit devil's advocate, but it came to my mind, I suppose, in wanting to sort of understand what is sort of the value in knowing for sure if, if the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome or spectrum disorder look similar or sort of are, you know, um, impacts on cognitive functioning behaviour, 
that could have a whole range of causes. Why is it useful or important to know that alcohol is the cause? I mean, I can obviously understand it from a public health and, you know, for trying to prevent women from drinking. Yeah. But after that point, is it useful for the child and their sort of trajectory to know that it was really alcohol that was a cause of that? Well, I think it is. On the whole, I think the literature supports the, the idea that uh, people really um, value getting a diagnosis. And what it can mean is the difference between um, understanding that it's not about the quality of your parenting, it's not about the quality of the way that you teach a child, it's not about the opportunities that you've given them, that's not, it's not about you, it's about something that's, that they've been born with. And this is particularly important for foster parents who can feel blamed when a child, when they can have difficulties in managing a child's behaviour, they can feel very blamed and isolated around that. And so it's a real shift in mindset. If you have a diagnosis, you can understand that it's not that the child's willfully disobedient, it's more that they can't. Um, so it's a shift from they won't to they can't at right. this stage you know, of their development. They can't do what you're asking them to do. They can't learn what you're asking them to learn. And so that's a massive mindset shift. Mm -hmm. But having said that, um, it's also a double-edged sword for many parents getting a diagnosis because it means that, okay, there's a relief, you know now with certainty what's going on for the child, but it also means that there's enormous sadness often um, and grief around what may not be possible for your child moving forward. So mm -hmm. it is a double-edged sword, but on the whole, people do value, really value getting a diagnosis because okay. it means that they have a sense of certainty around what's going on yeah. and it can mean that it's not necessarily reflective of their parenting and their love for their child but it's more about what what the child can't do at this moment yeah mm -hmm. and is FASD different to um, other possible sort of causes of behavioral cognitive challenges in that there it's I mean how how much can you work with a child to sort of help them gain back some of those capacities is it mm. possible mm -hmm. for them to sort of to, with the right therapy and intervention to be, sort of have normal functioning if we want to call it that yeah. or does it does it, is it kind of like a permanent sort of impairment well as, as far as we understand it seems like that we can't reverse the effects of alcohol on the brain on the developing brain what we can do though is if we get an early diagnosis we can um, put supports around the child that can support them to develop in the optimal way. So first of all, the child feels differently about themselves. If they have a diagnosis, they know that it's something that they've been born with. It's not because they're dumb, they're stupid or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So um, that can be a massive help. Um, then we want to put supports around the child in, and mostly that will focus on structuring the environment and making reducing the cognitive load for children. So it can be... Um, really beneficial to understand what it is we're dealing with. In some ways, like um, to take up your question, like in some ways it is very similar to other disabilities, but in some ways it's different. So some children may have intellectual disability, um, some children may have sensory issues, they may have uh, memory issues, they may have learning difficulties. So there are sim similarities between learning difficulties and there's similarities between fetal alcohol and um, children with intellectual disability. But there are also differences in that it seems that children who have um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or are living with that condition 
it's characterized by a lot of variability. So, so one day they might be able to do something and the next day they don't. So there's, it's almost as though some days the, the wiring in the brain works well and other days it doesn't. So I think that's one of the things that parents find the most um, frustrating. And so to really understand that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is similar in many ways to lots of other dis uh, developmental conditions, but it also has unique challenges. Um, mm -hmm. So really understanding that and educating um, professionals and parents around the nature of that condition, I think, can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. and it sounds like it must be quite tricky to arrive at that diagnosis and to filter out the other possible causes or things going on. How do you diagnose FASD? Yeah, so there's a lot of work going on internationally around um, around getting greater clarity around the diagnostic criteria. In Australia, there are um, clinics that have been established by the government and by private providers that can undertake the diagnostic process for you, or you can connect with some of the um, professionals that have been trained in that kind of approach. But broadly speaking, it involves a paediatric assessment, so basically looking at how the child's developing generally. The process would involve doing genetic screens so that we can rule out other possible causes, genetic causes of difficulties that the child might be experiencing. Um, they might, um, you would, it would involve a thorough neurocognitive assessment, so we'd be looking at um, 10 domains of functioning. And for the child to get a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, they'll need to be significantly behind in at least three of those domains of functioning. So the actual assessment process is really quite comprehensive. Um, and at the end of that process, you would hope that you would get a very good understanding of the child's profile, de developmental profile, where they're at at this moment in their life. Mm. And also that would lead then to some recommendations around how to support their child, the, the child's development moving forward. Mm -hmm. And still, how would you, because there must be lots of kids who haven't, uh, you know, had a mother in utero who didn't drink and could have all those patterns mm. and um, functioning levels and things going on. How, would, how do you still pull apart that it's alcohol and not something else? So uh, it's around um, asking about alcohol exposure in utero as well. Yeah, um, that's the uh, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then the genetic screening because it can present very similarly to some other genetic conditions. So the paediatricians who have been trained in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder assessment will do that kind of um, profiling and looking at facial features um, as well. They've got an assessment protocol around that. Um, and then the neurocognitive features um, are generally assessed by a psychologist or a speech therapist or um, an occupational therapist. Um, and they're looking at characteristic patterns. And so while there are some similarities with autism spectrum disorder, for example, um, the, the nature of social difficulties is slightly is different between the two groups. So there are some nuances that um, will come out as part of that neurocognitive assessment okay. um, that make it make it more clear what kind of difficulty we, we're, um, we're dealing with. And that's then triangulated with you know parent checklists and teacher checklists and so on. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at information from a range of sources uh, to come up with a diagnosis, but it is quite a comprehensive process, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to before that there used to, and possibly, probably there still is out there, sort of an, an idea that a small amount of alcohol during pregnancy is safe. What, what actually is the 
in the current sort of evidence-based position on that? Well, I think the um, the evidence base is still evolving around that. So there there has been research that showed a small amount of alcohol is probably does no harm. However, um, the bulk of the uh, if we look at the research on the whole, we don't really have enough evidence to say one way or another. We do know that exposure to alcohol, the the more alcohol you're exposed to in utero, the more likely that you will it will affect your development, not just the brain development, but the development of all the organs of the body. So the um, National Health and Medical Research Council, for that reason, recommends that the safest option is not to consume any alcohol at all during pregnancy. So while there is still no definitive evidence, um, the, the, the national guidelines do recommend um, that you advise women not to drink any alcohol at all yeah. during pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious to know, what's sort of the youngest age you could start to identify and diagnose FASD? Um, well, there's not been any uh, age set formally. However, um, anecdotally, I can tell you that um, one of the criteria that um, we use to diagnose fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is difficulty with executive functioning. So that's the, the, the ability of the brain to um, coordinate a set of functions to, in order to initiate attention, sustain attention, um, plan and monitor behaviour and benefit from feedback, amongst other things. So the executive functions are a set of coordinated functions in the brain. The reason I mention that is because we know that executive functioning um, doesn't, uh, it, it, it develops in leaps and bounds around the age of seven, six or seven. Mm -hmm. So some of the research is showing us that when we assess children at the age of three or four, we might be getting a profile that's not dissimilar to other children. But when we assess them at seven or eight, that's when the difficulties start to, to start to show up. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, some clinics don't do assessments before the age of eight, just because um, you're more likely to pick up the difficulties that children are having around that age. Um, so that corresponds, of course, to the start of school, the first grade, around that age, um, that we, we do typically see that children with learning issues um, start to come to the attention of the teacher and start to have difficulty keeping up with other children, start to have those social difficulties. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then ideally, what does the, what does intervention or sort of working with therapy with children look like? So um, because fetal alcohol spectrum disorder can uh, present in a range of ways, um, it's, it's about understanding that that child's unique profile, um, what are the areas of strength for that child and what are the areas that they struggle with um, and putting in supports for those areas that they struggle with to reduce their cognitive load. So it might be visual supports, it might be lots of repetition, it might be reminders, visual reminders, those sorts of things. But generally speaking, the strategies are around changing our expectations of children. So realising that they, um, they can't, not that they won't. So that's a massive mindset shift um, around realising that you've got a child who, um, who has it a significant issue and for them at the moment they can't comply with what you're asking them to do. They may not be able to learn in the same way as other children. So um, a lot of work is around um, processing that, that and what that might mean for the child. Generally speaking then the other thing that we focus on is structuring the environment. 
and being able to uh, simplify and supervise around children. Um, so being able to uh, create safe environments for children. So that would include things like um, putting physical barriers for children that can't predict the consequences of their actions if they're going to go out into a room that's dangerous, like a kitchen or whatever. Um, it might mean um, putting up visual reminders, structuring the the environment. It might be unpacking daily routines. So for example, you might use um, picture cues for a routine as simple as brushing your teeth in the morning. So you might need visual cues to help that child sequence and plan those events. So it's structuring the environment as much as possible to make um, the environment easier on that child, mm -hmm. reduce their cognitive load. Um, it's about educating all the adults in that child's life. Um, so it's really, really important for, um, for teachers to understand about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, for case managers and for all the professionals in that child's life to really understand what's going on for that child. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's about lots and lots of repetition and not expecting that if they can do something one day that they'll be able to do it the next day because on that second day they're brain might be fatigued and they can't, that information doesn't get through in the same way that it did on the first day. Mm -hmm. So it's being able to be, um, to live with predictable unpredictability on mm. behalf of the child, to expect the unexpected because the, the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is really characterised by really fluctuating levels of ability from day to day. So a lot of is it around the mindset shift. Um, to really understand that like if uh, as though a child had a broken leg you wouldn't expect them to climb stairs by themselves. Um, in the same way we have to put those steps really close together for a child with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder so that they can experience success. Mm -hmm. What happens to these kids when they grow up and become adults? Um, we don't know a lot about that. There has been some longitudinal research which shows uh, which tells us about the supportive factors that help them to succeed as adults. And one of that is one of those is early diagnosis. One of those is having a consistent uh, and responsive caregiver. Mm -hmm. So whatever we can do to support the caregiver to whether it's a parent or it's a foster parent to stay involved and um, connected to that child's life is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and other um, Features that other things that can help a, a child to be successful as an adult really then becomes around the systems and services that support um, a child. The more that a school can understand about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and adapt their strategies accordingly, the more that an employer can understand about a potential employee's memory difficulties and a, and change their expectations. The more it's the social as society can become supportive of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, the better the outcomes are likely to be for these young people. Mm -hmm. um, because we know, you know that children's mental health and wellbeing is, is, doesn't happen in isolation, it happens in the context of community and the context of our social systems. Mm -hmm. um, and so for many, for many young people, becoming employed is a, is a challenge. Uh, maintaining a job is a challenge mm -hmm. because of uh, a lot of the cognitive issues that can go alongside, you know, um, staying motivated, staying organised, managing money, all those sorts of things. For some people, they'll always need support with that. Mm -hmm. um, and some young people can um, go on to experience success in structured workplaces. Okay. So there's a wide variety because not all children are affected in the same way.
Okay. Yeah. So I asked you about sort of safe levels of alcohol consumption, and I also wanted to ask a bit some questions around the public health angle on this. And uh, yeah, it was, I wanted to ask what, if any, public health campaigns exist to try and prevent um, kids developing FASD in the first place. Yeah, I think the, uh, the Foundation of Alcohol Research and Education has run some really good um, campaigns, one of which is uh, called Women Want to Know, um, and they have um, produced some really great resources around um, demystifying the process, if you like, around asking women about alcohol consumption during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so they've got some concrete resources that practitioners can use to ask about um, alcohol use in pregnancy. So that's been a really strong campaign. Um, directed at GPs or directed um, at mental institutions? Um, yeah, at medical professionals largely, I think. Yeah, um, okay. And uh, there's also, they've also run a, a really great campaign around um, uh, called the Pregnant Pause, which supports, which encourages men to have um, a period of abstinence during pregnancy of, of their partner as well. Mm -hmm. Because we know that uh, one of the big influences of women drinking during pregnancy is men, their partners drinking during pregnancy. Um, and often mm -hmm. women feeling a pressured, uh, subtle or otherwise to continue to drink during pregnancy. So really um, highlighting the fact that men have a role, an important role to play around the future of their children um, as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so those are two of the main um, health promotion strategies that I think have been really, really great um, initiatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I might shift to asking you a few things around what might be for helpful for practitioners who don't necessarily have a lot of, or feel they have a lot of experience with FASD, what might be sort of helpful things for them to know. And so I was interested sort of how a practitioner might, if they suspect that a child might have FASD or it's something worth exploring, you know, how can they go about effectively engaging parents and asking in a sensitive way? Do you have any sort of thoughts around that? Um, well, I think, uh... In any counselling kind of professional client relationship, the main value that you bring to that is the quality of your relationship. So I think those things can be addressed in the context of a supportive relationship. So I think one of the things that we can connect with with um, pregnant women or with women um, who've had children is around their hopes and aspirations for their children. Uh, and I think there can be an alliance uh, uh, between a therapist and a, a woman around that. Um, and so I think that's a really good way to introduce the topic of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder around curiosity as to whether they are interested in learning more about the impacts of prenatal uh, events on children. Uh, whether they would be interested in learning more about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, whether they would be interested in talking around uh, their experiences of that. So it's one of those things I think that really comes down to fundamentally to your relationship mm -hmm. with that woman. Yeah. Um, and as most practitioners do, if you can create a safe space, I think women, the research indicates to us that women really want to talk about alcohol use in pregnancy. So we shouldn't right. be afraid of that raising that topic okay yeah i imagine it must be really quite a tricky one though because obviously it's something that's 
happened, it's mm. in the past, mm. it can't be changed, mm. and it must be quite a, a difficult process for a woman to confront. Yeah, I imagine um, the, the most the, the most important thing I think is that that really that non-blaming approach. Often women, and and I guess it's one thing to assume that it's important to assume that women didn't know the impact, potential impact of alcohol, because many women don't know mm. potential impact of alcohol when they're pregnant. So um, we can't always assume that it's an intentional act as well. So I think that non-blaming approach is really, really important to hold that in mind and in, in engaging with women um, about this yeah. topic. Okay. So for a practitioner, and I, we're speaking very broadly here, but someone who's not an expert in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, did suspect that that might be going on. What's the way forward for them? What do you think is the next thing they should do? Is it important to sort of refer to a service that does um, specialise in this area? Or Practitioners can find a lot of information on the um, FASD hub, uh, which is like a clearinghouse of um, information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder mm -hmm. that talks about, the, it gives you information about the diagnostic criteria um, and it gives you information about where the di where the clinics um, are uh, around Australia, and also can connect you with professionals who are FASD informed um, or have done, undertaken the training or are qualified to give the support or uh, around ongoing support around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So the FASD hub is a really good place to start for information. Or NoFASD Australia is a really good website. Um, so NoFASD Australia is the peak body for children and families um, living with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. So they're a really good place, um, source of information and support for practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if there is a suspicion of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or there's a known history of alcohol consumption during pregnancy, those places are really good sources of referral. Um, and it really depends on what jurisdiction of Australia you live in as to how how easy it will be to access those diagnostic services, diagnostic and support services. Mm. But pretty well in all jurisdictions, there is some form of support available now for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So things have really improved in the last couple of years around that space. So practitioners don't need to feel alone in that support. Okay. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important to add to this conversation? Well, I think um, it's important for practitioners to realise uh, that how common um, alcohol exposure is and how likely that is to result in some level of difficulty for a child, um, either physical differences, um, developmental differences, cognitive differences, attentional problems sleep disorders, um, sensory issues. Um, but for practitioners also, just to, to highlight the fact that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is an invisible difficulty. Um, it doesn't present in the way that uh, it is quite often not um, associated with any physical differences, any um, uh, differences in the face, face development, or it doesn't necessarily come with a raft of health issues although it can. So, it, and it can be um, present as ADHD and it can present as autism and it can present um, as intellectual disability um, and it can present as a mental health condition. So I think I would just encourage practitioners always to have in their mind that 
prenatal alcohol exposure may have a role to play in the kind of issues that children are dealing, children and family are dealing with. Not that it necessarily will, but it can have a role. Um, and that, I guess, just encourage them to think that, to remember that alcohol consumption is a lot more common um, than we perhaps think um, it might be. And that the presentation can look like any other condition. So it's important to ask and explore around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, around alcohol exposure, and to try and get that information if you can. Mm. Sounds like it's almost an important sort of universal conversation to have with any family that might be bringing, facing challenges with their children. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really the the recommendation um, uh, that's been made recently is around always asking whenever possible. And if you are an early childcare professional, also um, to use those kind of standardised tools like the Audit C to capture the amount of drinking and to capture that and to document that. Because certainly one of the issues for children in foster care is that by the time they're seven or eight and presenting for diagnosis and presenting with a range of issues, we may not have a good sense of the child's history we may have lost that if it's not recorded at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, we really encourage professionals to document alcohol consumption where, where there is a suspicion or where there is confirmed alcohol consumption. It, uh, down the track, it becomes a very important piece of information to have to, to set up the best supports for children. So you, as part of your role at the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, I know you've been involved in developing a suite of resources around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Could you just tell us a little bit about those resources and what people can find? If yeah, they sure. So um, I've developed a series of five resources um, just to really to touch on the main issues around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So really um, just describing what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is. Um, and why it's an important um, issue for practitioners to understand about um, and that it's the number one preventable cause of um, non-genetic developmental issues in children. Um, Then I've talked a little bit about the connection between fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and mental health for children Um, and so that often children who who are living with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder can go on to develop mental health issues because there's a chronic disconnect or mismatch between what the way that they need to process the world and the way that the world is structured so what we expect from them so and that causes uh, some issues for for young people so um, it's really I think important to highlight the potential for mental health issues and in young people living with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder then um, I've got a resource that's around some of the issues that young people can experience. So it really outlines the kind of challenges they might have with everyday memory, executive functioning, sensory issues, sleep issues, and uh, how we might support young people with those issues. And there's also a resource about working with families so that once they have received a diagnosis, how do we go on to support them? Um, What are some of the common issues that they experience around diagnosis? And what are they looking for from professionals in terms of support? And then the the fifth resource is around how can we as service providers um, and members of a sort of service system, members of the community support 
young people living with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Is there anything we can do to change the kind of services and the way that we offer services so that they're more aligned to the needs of children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? So really five um, resources that just touch on a little bit on each of those areas to give practitioners an overview of some of the key issues involved in supporting children. Yeah, and I've had a look at them. They are really great, clearly written and uh, concise documents. And so I think uh, I would certainly encourage anyone who's interested in delving into a bit more detail into FASD that they go and check them out. Thanks, Sarah. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds and delivered in partnership with the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian National University, the Parenting Research Centre and the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.